Welcome to the Great Base Podcast. I'm Steve Smith, episode 124. A review, a very quick review. Let's have a quick, uh, quick podcast. For us, quick, maybe 30 minutes. I think we have some that are three hours. Happy holidays, happy new year. I think of this time of year as a semester break. Vic Braden had many pet peeves, but such a jolly, fun guy, Santa Claus. He would want teachers to teach wire to wire. He did not like it when teachers would say, in the next class, this is what we're going to cover. Teach wire to wire. For 10 years, I was in charge of an academic department, tennis teachers. And I had three different coaches that would teach a class each semester. And understandably, the coach and these coaches very tough yeah, it's hard to imagine coaching two teams with these coaches. That's a tough assignment. So I understood where the, the class was not high priority for them, but I just did not want them to let the class out early. So I'd have a student assistant with a film and a projector or with TV on wheels, monitor with VHS, VHS tape. And if they wanted to let the class out early, the student assistant would say, okay, now we'll watch this tape. I always tell college students, if the professor lets you out early, stand up and jump up and down, raise your hand and say, I have a question, I have a question. And the question is, professor, you can't let us out early. Professor, you're not going to let us out early. We paid for this class. Can you imagine the dirty looks that you would get? This is a pet peeve of mine when uh, professors, they give the, they give the uh, final exam a week early. Typically in a 16-week semester, the last week is to review, and then you have your final. And obviously there's always unusual circumstances, but for the most part, if the professor is giving you the exam a week early, that means you're happy because you're going to get out of school a week early, but so are they. So are they. Um, this place I worked at for 10 years, a great experience was teaching the PE classes. And there was only one professor, one PE instructor during that 10-year period who was really into learning how to teach tennis. But for a five-year period, I taught tennis teachers just for a long weekend at Texas A&M. I remember they had three faculty members that had written books on tennis instruction. One thing I remember from that experience is they had all these courts. I think there was 36 of them. And each one had a backboard on the court, plywood. And it was, the backboards had numbers one through 24. And I remember I said, what are those numbers for? And it was an amazing answer. They said, that's how we take attendance. They blow the whistle. And all the students have to line up and say, for example, 18 and 22, the, the instructor could see that those numbers, there wasn't a body standing in front of it. So on their roster, 18 and 22 were absent and they could take attendance very fast. And therefore, they'd have more time to teach, more time to teach. That's like with ball pickup. You, know, you want to have people running the entire time. You don't walk from one station to the next. We have some exciting uh, interviews coming up. Andrew Rue, the Harvard tennis coach, Bud Schultz, Division Three tennis player, who ended up being 39 in the world. Um, also a couple others, a fitness coach from Germany, and our superstar intern, Rami Baby. So Andrew, Bud, Ram, and Johan. And we plan on keeping the show going. Uh, Andy Fitzell who started the podcast I said well should we just take a couple weeks off and he I think maybe I've mentioned that before he said no the show must go on we do get a lot of uh, feedback on a podcast and one thing we've been told is we need to try to circle back and and reinforce that's another obviously keyword review repetition reinforce so many great words beginning with letter R research in tennis, research and practice are so far removed. But one, with, the, with the great base, the name, again, comes from a conversation with Richard Hernandez. 
the USTA was calling the little kid program Quick Start. And I wrote an article that was published in Tennis Life. And I said, it's not a quick start, it's the right start. And Richard said to me once in a conversation, what tennis needs is a great base initiative. I said, say that again, great base initiative. And I said, I need to use that. It's okay, you give, me, you give me the permission to use that phrase, use that name, great base. Well, who can argue with having a great base? When Ty Tucker at the end of his interview with us said, you have to have a great base, he's just a coach. I think he came out of his mother's womb, a coach. He's just a coach's coach. He was not plugging our curriculum. He just speaks as a coach and and really in so many different realms. How could you argue with having a great base? Whatever you're learning, fundamentals. So just to quickly go through the pillars you know, if people started in the beginning, but if someone's a new listener to our podcast, I've used my name in third person, Steve Smith. It's not Steve Smith stuff, the way we're going about tennis teaching. I have the pillars down. Um, Vic Braden, just three things I wrote under Vic's name, science, humor, and again, research. 1977, he wrote the book, uh, Tennis for the Future, uh, was edited. Now it's Tennis 2000. I try to get a hold of that book and read, read that book. It will stand the test of time. Braden. Say it over and over again. So some of our listeners are tired of hearing this, but we want everybody that's teaching, and we teach everyone to teach, to just know the dimensions of court and physical laws, dictate stroke production, no coach's opinion, or any unique theory. So I tell people, if you don't know the dimensions of the court, I just diagram a tennis court and say, okay, how far is it from this line to this line? You know, 78 feet down the line, 82 and a half cross court. Where do I get 65.9? Round off 82 and a half to 83, 65.9 to 66. You just listen to our podcast on tennis math. You get 17 feet. So you hit through the court. 17 feet of ball length, coming back 17 feet. So I'll ask somebody that we've trained for a while, where do I get 34 feet? Vic Braden used to say, if you know your short ball range, you know tennis. I asked child after child, what's the short ball range? It's the numbers of steps that it takes you to get to good volume position. You hit your approach shot. So someone with a longer stride, a faster stride, they're going to have a short ball range that's closer to the net, but it's a radius, half the diameter. And we say for most people, it's approximately seven steps. So the answer is we, we get seven steps, seven feet, and then we know they don't know it at a high level. So if the player, it's, it's on our course, Tennis Intelligence Applied, the player in GVP, you just get a rope. They're hanging on to the rope. Now, this course is quite old. I, I know because my son Connor was 16 years old and now he's 32. So he's hanging on to the rope at GVP. I'm back approximately where his short ball range would be. And then I just start walking cross court. And if you kept on walking, you'd make a full circle. So everywhere as you move the diagonal, it's like a button hook. A football term when a receiver runs a button hook. And that's your short ball range. So when you hit cross court, which is a highly effective approach shot, you're waiting for a ball that's closer to the center, closer to the net. And it's the same amount of steps as it would be from down the line. With um, Harry Hopman, and I do think that's one thing with uh, fitness. Under Harry Hopman's name, I have just that fitness and footwork. And then character. Hopman used to have his players run 10 miles. He'd pick out one player to go have a beer with him. So the story goes, the legend, the legacy. So many times it would be labor. Rodney, let's go have a beer. Everybody else had to go run 10 miles. And today, I mean, I've told some people that I've had run 10 miles That'll be most likely the last time you'll ever do that in your life. 
I just think of self one, self two from Galway's book, The Doer and the Teller. The teller is the ego. Teller needs to shut up. But you got the angel and the devil, the good guy and the bad guy. Keep going, keep going, keep going. It's just a character builder. And I think so many young players today, they, they just don't come to us. You know, they're 12, 13 years old. They just don't have miles on their legs. You know, granted, uh, I know as a kid, I was given bad information and overtrained and slow twitch, long distance running in an anaerobic sport like tennis. But at the same time, tennis is a marathon of sprints. The way Hopman would feed a tennis ball, the first time I ever saw Hopman feed tennis balls, it was a group of girls from the Netherlands. And he's going, that's it, dear, lovely. And these poor girls, they were running in, touching the net, and they were not hitting an overhead. The, t- the feeds were so tough, but there was so much respect. So many things with Hopman. I think of Maureen Connolly, she wins the Grand Slam in 53. She had hired Mr. Hopman to be her coach. Always just stretch the player, push the player from a, from a feeding standpoint. You know, one of the reasons that people don't see me feed too many balls, I tell people I'm good at three things. My lifetime I've been good at three things. Lincoln Logs, which is the 1950s, 1960s version of, of, the, of Legos. Street hockey and feeding balls. But being trained as a technician, a braid knight, it's very difficult to just run people in circles when they have lousy strokes. If they're lousy, they're lousy. Braden, if you get in shape, you really work on fitness. Say, for example, you have the crummy backhand. This is Braden. You have a crummy backhand, you get really fit. Really, you're faster. You get in position. And when you get there, you just have more time to hit your crummy backhand. Because if it's crummy, it's crummy. But to put the, the pillars that we have together... I always tell people, I told some parents that visiting today, the technique is easy. It's really easy. It's the character. And again, most, most people in tennis, and again, we work primarily with junior tennis players, redo, go back to the drawing board. And it's, I tell some young people quite often, this may be the most difficult thing in your young life that you have to do, most difficult challenge that you've faced so far is changing your strokes. With next person I have down is Dennis Vandermeer. So again, uh, um, these first three are in the International Tennis Hall of Fame. I mentioned our podcast down the road here. That I'm sure Jim Lair will be in the, in the International Tennis Hall of Fame. But I think all eight of the pillars should be in the International Tennis Hall of Fame. With Dennis Vandermeer, progressions, you have to be able to break it down. Coming back to Braden, Braden used to say, don't use a KISS method, keep it simple, stupid. Don't underestimate the capacity of the learner. But it's keep it simple and smart. Keep it simple and smart. Simplification is sophistication. The better the player, the simpler the strokes. Period. End of story. No argument. And now with, you know, turn the doorknob, get to the contact point, turn the doorknob. I mean, the strings have to face the target. If the strings are facing the net, speaking of the net and Harry Hopman's drill, jumping back, don't have kids come in and touch the top of the net. I think people who've paid for nets know that. The top of the net, the net strap's made of plastic. When they run in, have them touch the net, not slap the, the top of the net. But Vandermeer, he could take a stroke from the follow-through and work backwards. I think the new uh, jargon for that is reverse engineering. And I've seen uh, recently, I'm fortunate that coaches send me so many videos, this and that. And, you know, somebody who has a complete horizontal release on both sides, forehand and backhand, and then to work backwards. You know, the great players... And again, not from the recovery standpoint, but from the follow-through standpoint, they could just let their shoulder drop and would go right back to the impact point. They have a long hitting zone or the tracking motion where the racket goes out towards the target. I love the phrase, path of the racket, the path of the target, connect the dots. But Brandomir progressions, 
he could break down the, the size of the stroke, the size of the racket, the size of the court. I just have people um, go from contact point up. I was doing that the, just, just today with eight people on a court, everybody moving. And as you turn, and almost nobody has the ready position. Almost nobody has their elbows raised. It's natural you walk around with your elbows to your side. If you walked around with your elbows out, it would be the Frankenstein walk. So you have your hands out. You have to be trained to do that. And in doing that, simple. Keep it simple and smart. So Vandermeer, using progressions, we're going to just go from contact point up. Just touch the ball. Also under, with Vandermeer, corrective measures, you'd call it, but corrective, app, corrective application. Somebody has a high toss, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to hit three serves running to the net. And you just tell people, you won't be able to do this drill. You know, to actually have the player swing, you stand next to them and you toss for the player. Have the player close their eyes and try to serve with their eyes closed. With a corrective measure allows someone to do a physical action that will improve their stroke. Say, for example, someone's stepping and you you want to be careful, you could put a ball in front of their foot. You could put a racket over their foot. So they're going to stabilize themselves to the court with the anchor foot and obviously the ground, ground reaction. With Vandermeer, he used to take a racket and tie it to the net. So then he went, so the kid's hanging out of the racket, but the racket's tied to the net, so the kid has to go forward. They can't take a big backswing. George Basho with the USPTA, he used to, um, and again, George Basho, the late George Basho, people have passed away, but we have to carry the torch. I mean, he did so much for the USPTA, George Basho, tireless worker, but he'd have two baskets. You know, the ones on wheels where they hold 300 tennis balls. One was filled with tennis balls. The other one was filled with teaching aids. Group dynamics. Uh, we had a podcast that was dedicated to group dynamics with Richard Hernandez, Vandermeer. Because he was so systematic, and again, a system, you, people don't like that word in tennis. Oh, you're teaching everyone the same. Well, there is the alphabet. There are the numbers. There are the building blocks. We're going to count first, add second, subtract, and build from that point going forward. But how to use space? To do solo drills, then partner drills, um, peer teaching. There's just so many things with group dynamics. Oh, so we can take, say, some Braden methodology and use Vandermeer progressions. So we always say with our with our um, eight pillars that Vic Braden is the Christmas tree. And, you know, what Hopman adds to it and Vandermeer is these beautiful ornaments. With our course, Tennis Intelligence Applied, again, this is a review. It's a 25-hour course. It's not too fancy. Not that well done from a production standpoint. Actually, Miran Mann, who was a guest on our podcast, he was doing an internship with us. It was when he got out of college, when we put that course together. We mentioned over 100 coaches. Mentioned over 100 coaches. So we're, we're not starstruck like some of our critics say on, on Vic Braden. It's, it's certainly not hero worship. It's, it's fact-based instruction. Just the facts, Jack. With uh, Jim Verdick. Jim Verdick. I have written down team coaching and building a championship culture. Very, very powerful. Doug, his son, was on as a guest. And that's the type of thing we need to go back and, okay, let's do that again. Let's dig a little deeper. But again, with our, our podcast, I mean, we don't have show notes. We're not taking excerpts. We know we're, we're supposed to do that. We should do that. We're... I'm a social media zero, but when it comes down to um, Instagram or Twitter, is just take uh, a little clip from Doug Verdict talking about his father or the letter that uh, incoming freshmen would read. 
just very, very powerful. Very, very powerful. I just hear recently we've had some college coaches that we've trained. And um, still to this day, and again, we've interviewed many, many college coaches, but um, what Jim Verdick did was just amazing. Where he'd have a freshman who you know, be charting matches. You know, he wasn't one to just have his players be a cheerleader. I don't really like that. You go to a college match and number seven, seven or number eight, you know, they're traveling with a team. We have a player just came in today, plays for one of the Ivy League teams, and there's 12 players on, on his team. Well, only six are going to play. What are the other six doing? And yeah, it's good to have, you know, someone in the stands pulling for you, try to get the crowd going, da-da-da-da-da. That's an exciting part of college tennis, but... Put your brains down. That's a thought from Jim Verda. Get a clipboard. Take notes. Chart. And and with that, uh, it's um, that's the progression of a of a verdict student. That's still so powerful that he's going to take a player who's not playing as a freshman. Of course, he coached so many years ago. For the majority of his career, I would guess maybe fifty fifty. Freshman couldn't play. You've heard that in our podcast. It was a developmental year. Stan Smith, Arthur Ashe, both won Wimbledon, both won the U.S. Open. When they went to college, as a freshman, they didn't play. And now it's just amazing to me that a lot of the top college coaches, especially on the men's side, you know, dangling a carrot in front of the kid and get, well, you don't have to join our team till January because you could play pro tennis in the fall and the college will fund it. It's like, no, let's, let's get you on campus and let's go to work and let's uh, take care of some of the holes in your game. But Verdict, the, the kid carrying the, the water bucket, helping with the first aid kit, time would go by and they would become an All-American. There would be true, true um, development. I tell a lot of kids that turn their nose up at Division three, a lot of Division one coaches... I tell kids, all right, they're running practice for three hours, but then you go get on the phone for four hours trying to recruit someone who's, who's better than you are. Uh, you know, I, I understand in Division Three, there's recruiting too, but it's, a, it's just a different animal. But putting the great base together, and like to consider myself a lifelong learner and the people helping us out, and so it's not like, well, we're just stuck with these you know, old tennis teachers of the past. But, you know, it's just different now. I mean, who, who are the leaders in American tennis instruction or worldwide, for that matter? Jim Lair. Again, with Jim, I, we dedicated either one or two podcasts to Jim, and then we interviewed Jim. I have down uh, in, between, in between point time. I think that's really was a very significant step in his progression of physical measures to improve mental and emotional performances. You know, now I would say most of his work is the character muscle. It always comes back to that the character muscle reputation is what's on the outside character is what's on the inside. What is someone made of? But the physical measures, he had a tape that came out, I believe 1984, what do you do with your eyes? The eyes of a competitor. He used to show tennis players animals hunting in the wild. Focus, intensity. The eye of the tiger. You know, the, the rituals, the serve, the return. What someone does when the point's over. Kids, a lot of times, they, they never let the racket out of their right hand if they're right-handed. Get the racket up. Show the image of being up. Um, increased blood flow in your, in your dominant hand, shaking your hand out, film the pros or watch the pros. What do the pros do in between points? You know, and a lot of times they have to sit down. I mean, most of the time they sit down, say with the big, big, big time matches, they're on TV and there's a commercial break. Junior tennis players, most of the time, if they're losing, they don't even sit down. They don't take the time. Senior players, they're going to show up they're going to bring a bigger water jug and they're going to bring a, a small portable chair and they're going to sit in the shade 
Okay, they really come prepared with um, Jim Laird. This comes from one of his teachers, Reiner Martins. Eliminate the external stimuli, focus on the task at hand. One ball at a time, one ball at a time, stay on task. And again, just like with all these people, people, Jim Laird, tennis players never arrive. They're always in transit to a better place. It's just so, so sad. Kids play one up, one back doubles for a half dozen years or more. I feel sorry for college coaches. The kids show up and they have no idea how to play doubles. They, my son, Connor, he's been complimented. should say was when he plays, complimented for his ability to play doubles. He had a great line. Well, I just know where to stand. I used to say, that's a great line, but why don't you add, I just know where to stand. I know how to hang out of the racket. You can just tell kids hanging on the racket with a Western grip, the body, the racket face is down, it's low. They're just looking to hit a forehand. You can just tell by how they, how they wait in the ready position that they're not going to play a conventional approach volley. They're not going to take time and space. They're not going to be looking to take that floater out of the air. Their opponent hits the ball up like a wounded duck. And a lot of kids are running backwards. It's just amazing. Um, you know, a lot of our players here recently were there at the Eddie Hur and at the Orange Bowl. I asked a young girl today who's doing really well. I said, between those two tournaments, did you serve in volley one time? And the answer was no. And then coming back to when we'll move down the list here to Bill Jacobson, these pillars are not written in any order, but a green light point. So what we've done is put a lot of pieces to a puzzle together. Bill Jacobson, if you're up 40 love, 40, 15, 30 love, the, the math is on your side to take a risk. And it doesn't have to be certain volley. You could throw up a high arcing ground stroke and we don't call it a drop shot. We call it an imitation shot. Just bring the player to the net. And when they come in, it's just amazing. Junior tennis players don't know how to lob. Arthur Ashe said that he didn't learn how to lob until he was 33. I may, may tell him that and may make him feel better, but then you got to tell him who Arthur Ashe is. I do think with the U.S. Open having its Arthur Ashe Stadium, I do think kids know who Arthur Ashe is. But they hit a lob to be a winner. You can hit a topspin lob defensively, but it's used a little bit of logic. You're, you've played somebody for 35 minutes. They're at the net the first time. You don't have to hit a TV topspin lob. Just hang the ball up there, make them look at the blue sky, and they're going to miss. We do a drill where we feed a ball up, a situational drill. And so the, can they hit a high defensive lob? Just do four and four. Okay, lob off your forehand side, lob off your backhand side. Your opponent comes in, they have to touch the net, not slapping the top of it. They use crossover steps like they're going back like a quarterback. And they're going to let the ball bounce, and they just hit the overhead up the middle. And then can you have a short, compact swing and off that overhead play a ball with topspin that you're going to get down at their feet? Because they should play the overhead and come in. Now, we're working with players in their formative years. For us, the overhead at the baseline is a ground stroke. The overhead at the red zone, ground stroke. Overhead in the yellow zone is a pro shot. Overhead in the green zone, that's an overhead. You can put it away. Um, now that's not what you're going to see on TV. I mean, especially the men, um, they're putting the overhead away from everywhere with that comes back to Hopman and feeding balls. When people feed, stretch them a little bit further, a little bit further. And kids who never go to the net, it's not that they're slow. They confirm, reconfirm. It's a lob. Yes, it's a lob. They don't have the instincts. They, they don't have the recognition skills. When a kid comes up and bangs an approach shot, becomes an anxiety shot, they lose out on the opportunity to play a volley. When a kid, when a kid comes in and they miss a volley, like that happens so many times, times today. I'm still running two practices a day. I might be one of the worst tennis teachers in the world, but I'm ranked pretty high for a number of hours teaching. Now with that, if they miss... At the net, they've dictated the point. They've dictated the point. People should go to our uh, course, Tennis Intelligence Applied, and watch the, ten, the, the Jim Verdict 10-minute warm-up drill. 
You just need to know that. Um, so with Jacobson, um, statistical analysis, match play perspective, just what I wrote down, a review. Bill, South African, played Wimbledon, class act, smart, smart guy. Should get online and read about Bill Jacobson. So with Bill, he interviews players after they played. And it's really a sight to behold. I mean, they have no, for the most part, they have no idea. They really don't know. And again, this is, say, junior players, um, even college players, have no idea what happened. And I'm not talking just from a technical standpoint, but tactically what happened. And, you know, it's, to me, a crisis right now. You know, clones taught by clowns. That'll get people's attention. Clones taught by clowns is everyone's playing the same. Oh, I mean, it's a pretty strong statement. Everyone's playing the same. Yeah, there, you, there's, no, there's no overheads. There's no volleys. There's no approach shots. No approach, conventional approach volleys. They're just looking to bang a forehand. With, um, and, you know, with, say, a, a Braden and a Vandermeer, they were both like, you know, so much in the public eye when tennis boomed in the 70s. Far more similarities among those two than differences. As far as, okay, what's the finished product? What were they trying to do when they were getting people to hit a tennis ball? And for those people listening to the first time, I was trained to teach tennis by Welby Van Horn, Vic Braden, and Dennis Vandermeer before I was 26. So that was over 40 years ago. And um, it, it hasn't changed very much. You know, it's still a basics or basics. Great base. But match play perspective, you know, he would just interview the players. He'd ask questions. And then, but he would have the stats in front of them, in front of him. And, you know, two levels of ignorance. You don't know and you don't know you don't know. With, um, when a player loses a point, usually they just, it's just gasoline in the fire. Now we want a player when they miss, and coming back to Jim Lair, you know, what to do in between points. They make a mistake. They look right at it. They don't look away from it. Lair used to do a drill where you'd have to come in and dump the volley. And then what do you do when you miss that shot? You look right at it with strength. It's denial if you look away from it. it but you, you do slap yourself on the thigh. You do have a physical reaction that's negative, but you instantly instantaneously change that to a positive cheerleader. Come on, let's go. If you won't support yourself, who will? So you go from negative to positive specific. You post plan, but then you make any correction. But most people make a technical or technical or a tactical or a combination of technical and tactical mistake. And the response is just emotional. I can't believe it. I'm playing so bad in their body language and their self-talk. Um, we're a little bit backlogged with some match play that we need to analyze for visiting players. And, and again, it sounds like doom and gloom, but many times all you have to do is watch the first two games, first two games. And it's like they're chat, they're up and down. They're, they're regulated by the scoreboard for us. There's four types of warmups. You get up in the morning and before you leave the house, tournament day, non-tournament day, you know, maybe it's just, three minutes in front of the mirror, but it's something. Maybe it's, you know, making your bed and doing some push-ups. But then you're going to obviously, the day of a match, you want to try to hit some balls for 30 minutes. You know, maybe it's against the garbage dumpster. You know, where can you hit a ball? Um, parking lot, you know, with a partner, without a partner. You can't backboard. A lot of times you can't hit, warm up on a tennis court. Then you have the traditional warm-up. You hit with your opponent for the first five minutes before the match. But then it's the first four games. There's no time clock. And we say, make the discoveries. Make the little discoveries. You know, if you're playing somebody, Bjorn Borg, you're playing somebody, you only keep three balls in play. You only have to keep four in play. Okay? Playing people that have very poor shot tolerance. Uh, we have a young girl that, you know, she gets a lot of attention because the way she moves, the way she hits the ball. She lost a practice set the other day to a player a little bit older who was a complete beginner not too long ago. So one player, is, I would say, has been with us for five years, the other player with two. So the other players caught up to the point where they, they take their first set. 
But the player who's been playing so long, their shot tolerance, they just don't want to stay in the rally. You got to be willing to just stay in the rally. Um, you know, come, that comes back to Bill Jacobson. You know, to be managed by stats versus managed by score. Well, you can't just say it that um, black and white because um, Jacobson gets into the score. And again, that comes back to a green light point. I mean, you're up 40 love, hit a body serve, young kid. And so the return comes back. And um, I had the chance to work with a guy, unbelievable character, Scott Stewart, just one semester. You know, if you had a, if I had to make a list of people I could choose to coach, he'd be on that list. He was, father's a cross country runner, a great fighter. But I remember he went from Tyler Junior College to Texas. And the coach at the time, Dave Schneider, said, can you at least go up there and poke one volley deep? That's all you have to do. But he, you know, he won with his legs. He won with his spirit. And singles or doubles, can you go up and just hit one deep volley? And then, you know, coming back, I mean, Braden, great friends of Jacobson, is that, um, you know, Vic certainly knew what Bill was teaching, but what Bill did is with his uh, computer, CT120, being a pioneer in 1982, it was just a tool of persuasion. And in a lot of ways, it's too bad that you need that. I mentioned that when we talked to young uh, Gino, Octa, and Cole Reeves. I was at Orange watching a match, and a girl that I've had a lot to do with her tennis for now, let's just guess, six years, six and a half years. And the, the dad sent me an email the other day. He goes, well, yeah, I still got to get you the film. I don't need the film. She doesn't need the film either. Oh, you could, okay, we're going to break it down and show you all the details. Yeah, it would be better with the film. 100%, yeah, it would be better with the film. But again, all this language, you're in the red zone. The ball is above waist level. The ball is slightly outside the single sideline. You're on clay and you're changing the direction of the ball. You're not using your legs. Well, okay, sure enough. Okay, let me, let me show you that. And no, people have to realize that great players of yesteryear, they ended up being, and, and, and remember hearing Vince Spady say that one time, is old school players did a lot of things better than the modern players of today. Now, granted, they played on a different type of grass. Um, they, they played on grass at, where the, by the second week, because they didn't have a, a, these grand slams, the Australian, Wimbledon, and the U.S. were on grass. And they wouldn't cover the court with tarp. By the second week, the players were in spikes. You know, granted, they're using wooden rackets, but they just didn't want the ball to bounce. And, um, you know, when it comes down to just play an approach shot to the middle, you're playing somebody who they're never coming to the net and all they're doing is hitting returns other than, you know, basically hitting a reliable second serve, nothing fancy. And so that's it. They're serving. That's one motion. Everything else is a circular swing. They're playing ground strokes. They're playing returns. They're playing passing shots. Um, they're not playing swing volleys. They're not playing half volleys. Those are uh, circular swings, the half volley close to that. But um, two more on the list of review is Welby Van Horn. Now, again, we hope to get more things done here now that we're a nonprofit, the new year coming up. Uh, we interviewed Ed Weiss, who wrote the book, um, a great, great book. People should listen to that podcast. And uh, spent some time with Welby's son, Stuart, and we've got a green light to uh, put the book on our website. We need to get that done. And with Welby, balance, body positions. You know, now tennis is based so much on entertainment. You know, it's more of a sport. Excuse me, it's more of a business than a sport. We got to make it fun. The only business is a repeat business. You go to a teacher's conference and there's more sessions on how to make money than how to make players. And then you have some people say, well, my job is just to make sure we have happy members. Why do they, thankfully they don't have that type of uh, 
thought process when they're teaching swimming. Swimming is a life-saving skill. Um, even if someone's a recreational player, they're just playing once a week, the tennis teachers need to teach tennis. So they'll be able to stay with the sport. That comes back to right now, we in tennis have to um, think about pickleball. It is exploding. And a mom who's really connected with what we do says it so well is that the, the tennis players need to show up on the pickle court, pickleball courts and take over. Take over. And, and that's what, you know, I mean, I watch people teach pickleball every day for a few minutes. I actually, I walk there, I walk back, I walk there, I walk back. So maybe five minutes times four, 20 minutes a day. And, um, you know, you need to teach tennis skills. Oh, does it vary a little bit? Yeah, it does. But you need to teach tennis skills. The best, the best pickleball players are, are um, at this point, are tennis players. Now, maybe that'll change. Some of the big-time athletes are going to obviously be getting into pickleball. But with coming back to um, Welby, his first three lessons, you wouldn't even hit a tennis ball. Hands on your hips, you know, the reflection of his pro shop window, and you go stand on the tee line. Welby used to teach the serve. You just put the, have the kid put the racket right like this in the tray position, pizza position, and you just be toss and tap. But he'd teach them stance, and he would teach them slow to fast. You'd teach them a low toss, and they'd have to end up on balance. And then from there, you'd say, okay, now we're going to go from the beginner grip to the championship grip, a continental grip, and they'd have to change their swing. I've mentioned it a couple times before, but... Phil Eisenberg, who owned the Welby Van Horn Tennis Camp. Learned tennis, you'll never forget. I remember um, Vic Braden asking me over and over again about Welby Van Horn because he knew I had worked for Welby. And he, he had not been around Welby. And uh, the finished product, you know, certainly Vic with high-speed film, you know, just more knowledgeable, just had more information. But, you know, Welby with the street smarts, I heard Joel Trucker, great writer, say about, what, about Vic. Part of Vic's education was he spent so much time on the pro tour. Big buddies with Jack Kramer. Vic, Vic used to say, yeah, my job for three years was just to walk around and apologize to people that Pancho Gonzalez insulted. Uh, so street smarts, book smarts. But Vic had both, for sure, all that time with the pros. And he himself, I mean... He, uh, I think it was three times where he won the Michigan High School State Tennis Tournament. He was a high school quarterback. He was a guard in basketball, five foot seven, but he was a jock, a smart, smart jock. With Welby, you know, to be on balance and off balance position, you know, you can only improvise within a fundamental range of correctness. With, get a little ahead of ourselves, but the upcoming Bud Schultz, uh, that's already been pre recorded. He spent one week at the Welby Van Horn Tennis Camp. And I said, what, your, what, what comes to your mind when you think of being 13 years old and being at that camp for one week? What he could do with a tennis ball. What he could do with a tennis ball. Um, Nandan Ball, I think Nandan was you know, definitely top 300. At one time, he was the Davis Cup coach of India. He was on the staff. Certainly, Welby intimidated him. And he might have been 19, 20 years old, but he's a very good player. And at that time, and it was an exhibition. Well, during the warm-up, Nandan hits the ball in the net during the warm-up. And, and there might have been 200 people watching between the adult camp and the junior camp, maybe even a few more pe- people from the Choate campus in Connecticut, the Choate School. So well, be easily 20 minutes, he just stopped and talked to everybody. But how can you miss a ball in the net in the warm-up? But, Del, but Welby, you know, he would just come in and he'd, he'd be able to hit a spot on the serve. He was in his 60s. He hit that first volley deep. And I've met a lot of top 10 players in the world, but I think of uh, Welby Van Horn, Wayne Sabin, and Carlene Bassett. You know, that, those three, that's a competitive person. Welby, he'd go to a town and he'd, he'd go to the putt-putt He'd find where there's a putt-putt, and he would want to know what the course record is, and he wouldn't leave until he broke it. He would play table tennis with kids, and he would 
I'll have to play on one foot, you know, tie both his shoes together, uh, find the poor kid who had the Coke bottle glasses, play with his opposite hand, spot people, you know, 15 points when you, when you're playing to 21, um, with, uh, but with Welby to be even on balance when you're in off balance position, uh, Peter Burwash just passed away recently. Creativity. Peter would be the guy who's okay, we're going to play tennis hopping on our left foot. We're going to play tennis hopping on our right foot. So then you, you put all this together, you know, with, with Hopman and skipping rope. Charlie Hollis, you know, teased Dave Squire, Australian, lives in Germany. Son's become a really good player. When you take lessons from Charlie Hollis and he, um, that's to me. That's very much like Braden to Lansdorp. You know, Braden was seven years at the Kramer Club, and when he left, Lansdorp came in and he did such a great job. It was a. It wouldn't work the same if it was reversed. So Charlie Hollis, for example, taught Laver when Laver was a kid, and then Laver had the best. You know, so you know he worked with a technician and. Hopman was more of a taskmaster. What a great progression. And if it was reversed, it probably wouldn't have worked as well. I remember uh, Elliot Telsher, he's about my size, not a big guy. And I'm going to guess that he was in the top 10. Our fact checker, I'll have to look that up. I'm going to guess he was in the top 10 eight times. I mean, eight years. I mean, maybe that's just because I had a very high opinion of how he plays for his size. And, and you know, he gets to the quarterfinals of the US Open so many times. I can't give a number of the fact checker. He's going to look it up. But with that, um, if you took lessons from Charlie Hollis, you had to jump rope a thousand times. You get one lesson a week and he wouldn't give the lesson. If you didn't, if the parents would say, no, they didn't do a thousand jumps. Had to do a thousand jumps every day. And then you could have your lesson. My son played tennis with a kid who was a very good piano player. A kid played at Duke. Fred. Fred Saba, I guess his name is, from a long time ago. And I remember the story, get throwing him under the bus, but he was a very good piano player and he had recorded himself. And you know, he's in his bedroom laying on his bed playing a computer game and his mother, he, and he was blaring on his sound system, recording himself where he had played piano. And his mother go, oh, what a great kid. He's in, he's in his room playing piano. And then she walked in and it wasn't him playing piano. So coming back to Burwash, I've got down professionalism and creativity. You know, Peter, I think that's certainly gone away. Peter, tennis teachers are one step above a beach bum. Where uh, back in the day, you know, my job was to get people jobs. At one point, I was training over 100 people per year in an academic setting. And it's unfortunate that that's, that those type of numbers, there's no school like that in the U.S. right now. I mean, if you take uh, Ferris State, Tyler Junior College's program has been dropped. Ferris State and Methodist College, you just take those two. Um, combined, they're not close to that number, 100 people per year. And it's... Uh, you know, it's not a matter of pointing fingers. I think a lot of it is uh, YouTube inter- YouTube education. Perhaps you can build a deck at your house by going to YouTube. I, you're not going to build a tennis player by going to YouTube. I say that with most YouTube educators. But if people go through our content, um, it's not a matter of, you know, we've created anything. We're, we're taking these eight tennis teachers and really what they stood for. Um, coming back to Hopman, one thing we talked about in these podcasts, and it is like a semester and you think, oh, gee, these classes are two hours long and okay, 16 weeks is a semester. Okay, let's have a review. But go to the internet and look up JFK Fitness and what that was like in the 60s. And one of the comments I've brought up many times is a review from our podcast, Dave Anderson. You know, how can we improve American tennis? And he said, use the, TV, the, the movie um, Back to the Future. Um, yeah, I think we need to circle back, circle back. 
And I do think that in tennis, um, we need to look at other sports. We need to have our tennis players take a time out and go, how do they teach in other sports or just learn from other, other sports with something over and over again, a basketball player, they know they have to make the shot. Kids today know Michael Jordan. You know, kids today may not know Andre Agassi, but they know Michael Jordan. And they know that name say, okay, Jordan, they stand in one place. And the foul shot is very much part of the part of the sport. Well, you do stand in one place and have to make you serve. You know, and that service box, going back to Braden, the dimensions of the court, it's 13 and a half by 21. I tell people, get over here. This is like a small living room. You could put a couch here, two corner chairs, coffee table, big TV, some bookshelves. And, you know, can you get the tennis ball in the box? Can you get the tennis ball in the box? Most tennis players, they don't play within themselves. They don't play within themselves. They're trying to play outside themselves. Play shots that you owned. Play shots that you own and then build from there. Understand the process. You're only going to gradually get better anyway. Um, most tennis players try to hit the ball too hard. Most tennis players don't understand the key shot. All day long, they hit short. Not only do they hit short, they hit short, and they'll hit short and wide. So then their opponent has all sorts of options. And one is that they're typically their opponent's not taking the ball as an approach shot. They're, they have the option to come in and go down the line or angle begets an angle. Um, with uh, our content, you know, I'm t- we don't really talk too much. I mean, certainly we don't go with sponsorship and we're not really uh, even plugging. Uh, I get an F minus in uh, marketing. But our Facebook, Great Base Tennis Facebook, I'm going to guess, uh, you know, 15 years, at least 12 plus of content. Also, Instagram, we want to circle back and start doing more Instagram uh, clips. We really need to film on a regular basis, which is what happens with what we do day to day. Um, We have five courses online. There's articles. We have a, there's a narrative written on our program online called Journey to the Truth. And then these podcasts. You know, we're, I guess, yeah, this is 124. So anyway, happy holidays. Happy New Year. That's a review. And um, repetition. You, you need to, I need to hear it over and over again. When I hear somebody say something I really like, and I use a Jim Lair line. Are you going to take that sucker in? Are you going to own that? Are you going to, you know, and he'll say that, um, you know, for someone to change, I'd like the one, it's going to take a stick of dynamite. But you, you hear something, you know, I today met with a group of players. They try to do this all the time. And I go, you don't journal. You should have notes. But at the end of the day, have some reflective time. Can you at least write down three things? Three things. And the reason that kids, they're good kids, but the reason they can't do that is the phone is a major problem. The quality of life is when you're not online. You know, can you go for, we had this young German that we, has been here, great guy, Johan Fruling, and you should listen to his podcast. And he said, you know, these kids, and he's not that much older than some of the players that he's been supervising, chaperoning. Don't listen to music. You know, don't do this, don't do that. Just go for a run. Don't even take you know, when you go you're gonna go out the door, don't don't say you have to take your phone to have it be the stopwatch. Just look at the clock when you leave and run back to the house and what's the clock when you when you get back. And again, I think people from yesteryear, they didn't have that technology to interfere. And with the interference, the it thing, that kid's got the it thing. That kid switched on. The athletes are biocomputer. They're just switched on. The it thing is you're not about the UTR. You're not about the ranking. You're just about getting better. 
I had so many people tell me they just loved what Ty Tucker said on a podcast. We don't call it practice. We call it time to get better. Time to get better. And that's one thing that you have that you can never, all of us, one thing you have that you never can replace. So we are coming up to a new year and it should be a different year. It should be a better year. You know, know, just can someone, Jim Verdick, don't you want to just be 1% better than you are right now? And with that, I tell people all the time, you really should only measure improvement one year at a time. And I think that would help the, the, the parent-child relationship. And again, it's, uh, it's really sad now with kids playing matches and everything's recorded. And you know, now if they uh, lose more than six games, or they, so they, they win, but they lose more than six games, they know their UTR can go down. So they don't feel like they can experiment and add to their game. They're just playing this one-dimensional game because they want to win now. All these great coaches, I'll just end with one last uh, thought from another coach. And I, think, I do think we have to look outside of tennis so much to, to find education, to find motivation, to find inspiration. Is Lou Holtz, win. What's important now? What's important now? And these young kids, uh, I said, okay, if you brought me your journal, and we used to collect the journal, so I'll point point the fingers at myself first. But the standard has been beaten down so low. I mean, I used to have the journal. A kid could come, I would just hand it to him. We have these bookshelves, and this is where your journal is. Take the time, leave it there. And, And a diary is private, but a journal, anybody can read. And they don't do it. And the journal would get an F. As a tennis coach, a junior tennis coach, the um, you know we don't have the the power of the school teacher. Really, only once in my life, once in my life for a decade, and that's a long time. Is I had the power, if maybe that's the wrong word, to issue a grade: A for excellent, B for good. C, average, D, poor, F, unacceptable. And in tennis, you don't get an A. The tennis coach, the junior coach, is not giving you a report card. Years ago, I can remember going to hockey school, and you know, there, there would be a report card sent home. You know, you know, basically how you turn and how you do this and how you do that, your skills, but also to your character. But you do uh, in tennis going back to Lou Holtz, what's important now is there's a W and there's an L. W is for win and L is for loss. W begins work and win. Lazy and lose. They're connected. Um, But anyway, happy holidays, happy New Year's. I hope you're getting something out of these holidays, but that's a review. The, The Great Base, there's a history behind it. And it's homework. We have just compiled a lot of information, ideas, and insights, and it's free. And we would love to uh, be helping people with tennis to the point where, um, one of many, it's not so expensive. And actually, we would say it's on a silver platter, and you know, it's going to be the attitude of the household. And I really think that the program plus, I always say that, there's not a program that develops players. It's what you do on your own. If you're only doing what you're supposed to do at practice, it's not enough. How are you going to get ahead? But, you know, what people do on their own, and kids need to listen to their parents. The three rules for us. Number three is be different. It's different to have a journal. It's different to get up and, you know, do 10 push-ups before you go to the bathroom to do a shadow swing routine in the mirror. Number two, working backwards is the one-time rule. Shock your parents, turn the lights off, put your dirty clothes away. Just the one-time rule, you're told once and you do it. And then the first one for us is do just the opposite of what you want to do. And so turn off the phone and Lou Holtz, all these great coaches, um, what's important now. But the pillars, Vic Braden, Harry Hopman, Dennis Vandermeer, Jim Verdick, Jim Lair, Welby Van Horn, Bill Jacobson, Peter Burwash. 
Adios amigos. Thanks for listening.